everyone in this room, there would probably be a million different answers. There'd be a lot of different answers. Some of you might say, well, I want a church with an amazing live stream so that I can stay at home when I just don't feel like coming and I can watch and have the same experience. Some of you might say, well, I, I want the preacher to have a certain kind of personality. I want him to be like entertaining, but, but also not too entertaining. And I want him to like look nice and dress a certain way or, or preach in a certain style. Or maybe you might say, I want to make sure that there's all the ministries that I want to see in a church. I want to make sure that there is a youth ministry and a singles ministry and a college ministry and a young adults ministry and a ministry for people with young kids and a people for ministry with old kids and a people for ministry with no kids. And I want to see a ministry for young professionals and old professionals and middle-aged professionals and retirees and seniors and empty nesters and I want to make sure everyone is targeted with a certain ministry. Or maybe you might say something like, well, the people really matter. I want to make sure that it's a diverse church where not everybody looks the same, but not too diverse to where I start to feel uncomfortable. Or I want to make sure that the people are like real and honest, right? Like they're not fake, they're not stuffy, but at the same time, I don't want them to be too messy because then that's just, it's just too much, It's too much to handle. But the people kind of need to be the right way. Or, or maybe I, I need a church that just makes me feel a certain way. It needs to make me feel good about myself. Or it needs to make sure it doesn't like say too many things that offend me. Or I need to make sure that like when I'm there, I just, I feel like the Holy Spirit is there. Right? It just like, it moves me to emotions. Or maybe you think, well, it needs to have the right kind of building. And I would never go to a church that meets in a school. It's not a real church yet. It doesn't even have its own building. Some of you maybe thought pulling up this morning, there's a, a rig in the parking lot. What is this? What kind of church is this? You're not laughing because you thought it this morning. Um, I thought it when I pulled in. I was like, what is this? Oh, it's all good. We love this school. I'm grateful to meet here. Um, but some of us have opinions. About it. I, I, want a, I want a building that like, it's a real church, not a strip mall building. I want like, with like stained glass windows and a steeple and yeah, I want to feel like it's church, you know? And I want to find a place like that. Or I want a church with a certain dress code. Or I want a church with the convenient service times to fit my schedule. There's a million different answers that people might give for what we're looking for in a church, what we want in a church. But the big question is, what should we want in a church? Not what do we want, but what should we want in a church? Well, we should want what the Bible says a church should be. But the question is, well, what does the Bible say about church? What is it? That's what we're going to spend the next five weeks answering. It's important for us to understand what the Bible says about church and how it should function and why committing and belonging to a local church is so important. As we open the pages of Scripture, if you open to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, you start reading the book of Genesis, you'll start to see something just popping off the page to you. You'll start to see that the story is focusing on people. It's focusing on individuals and families. We see Adam and Eve. And we see their children. And we see this character Noah come up. And then we see Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And then Jacob's 12 sons, which form the nation of Israel. And then the story follows along this people group all throughout. And what we see from the very beginning of the pages of the Bible is that God is 
in the work of calling a people to himself, of creating a people for his own possession. God is about people. We see it all throughout the Bible. In fact, when he begins this nation, when he calls people to himself, he doesn't start with an already existing nation. He creates one. He chooses a man named Abraham. He says, I'm going to create a nation out of you. I'm going to make one. And he does. And in the book of Exodus, we get this picture after God has led all of his people who have been enslaved for hundreds of years. He leads them out of slavery in Egypt. He gathers them to himself. He gathers them to himself at a mountain. And when the Bible describes this this story that happened in Exodus chapter 20, here's Deuteronomy's explanation of what happened. Deuteronomy chapter four says this. On that day, you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, which is a mountain. The Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. The Bible's description of what God does is gather the people, gathers his own people to him. And in the, the Old Testament is written in the language of Hebrew. Uh, before Jesus comes, on, comes to the earth, the, the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek for the Greek-speaking world. The Greek translation of that Hebrew word gather is the same word that now gets used to describe the church in the New Testament. You didn't know Greek this morning, but you're going to learn a Greek word today. We don't do this all that often. But it's the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means called out ones. That's like the very literal definition. Ones that are called out. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a, in classical Greek, it's used to refer to citizens of a city. So when there's official business happening in a city, the, the officials would say, get the ekklesia together. Get the called out ones, the citizens of the city. Bring them together for a gathering because we have official business or we need to vote on something or we need to discuss something or we need to make a decision as a city. So bring the ecclesia together. Now, when the New Testament authors and when Jesus talks about the church, they choose this word, ecclesia, the called out ones, the assembly to communicate to us a, a, a change of this word to mean not no longer just simply citizens of a city, but that God's people are citizens of a kingdom. Citizens of a kingdom. It, it takes this familiar word and gives deeper meaning to it to say God's people are now the called out ones who aren't just citizens of a city, but they are citizens of the kingdom of God. It is the assembly of, of the redeemed people of God. That is how the, how the Bible traces this understanding of the people of God. The church, the ecclesia, the assembly, the called out ones. We'll talk a little bit more about implications of, of that word in next week as we talk about the importance of gathering. But I want to just focus this morning on this idea that the church is primarily and, and foremost a people of God people that he called out of one place to belong to something different, to belong to a kingdom. And as we look at the church throughout the New Testament, we see that it's made up of not just one ethnicity, not just one race, not just one people group. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, from people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. 
that it, God does not have two separate peoples, but God has one people, the people of God, the called out ones, made up of Jews and Gentiles. The church is the organic development of what the Bible talks about being the true Israel. As the Bible looks back on the Old Testament, it says the people of Israel were God's people, but not everyone that was ethnically Jewish was truly a follower of God. Not everyone was a part of true Israel is what the New Testament would say. That it is those that truly believe and trust and follow the Lord. They are the true Israel. It was never just simply by ethnicity that even Israel was saved. It was through trusting the Lord. The church is the organic development of true Israel, the people of God. Now, we don't have the time to talk about all of that this morning, the differences or similarities or what's happening between the church and Israel. If you have questions on that, I'm happy to discuss that, but not for this morning. But what's happened is, is the, this true Israel has grown and matured and developed into the church where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, have now been grafted into the people of God, connected to the tree, the root that is Christ which is where we come to in 1 Peter chapter 2, where God looks at the church made up of all different kinds of people. And he looks at the church and he says, you are a chosen race. You are a new people. You are a new man, the book of Ephesians would say. That God has taken two things that are different and brought them together to be one new man. The church is a new thing, is a chosen race. It's a new race of people, followers of God, citizens of a kingdom. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You minister to one another as you represent King Jesus. A holy nation, a set-apart people group. A people for his own possession. God has always been doing this. As we come to talk about the church we need to understand that the church is the people of God that belong to him. He's purchased, purchased them. He's called them out. They belong to him. Acts chapter 20 would describe it this way when addressing elders, leaders in the church. It would say this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The people of God, the church, are those whom Jesus himself has purchased with his own blood. The church primarily is not a place, it's not a program, it's not a concept. It's a people whom God has chosen and purchased and redeemed and called to himself. And as we see God establish this people, the church, the New Testament shows us, here's what a church is. You want to know what it is? Read the New Testament. It lays out for us what a church is. Now, when the Bible talks about the church, it's primarily referencing one of two things. The first one is the universal church. Hey, here's a couple of verses that explain what that uh, looks like. This is the book of Revelation, chapter 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, Jesus. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom 
and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. One more, Ephesians chapter 4. says this. There is one body, the one people, and one spirit. Just as you, when you were called to believe, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's what all of that is saying. It's talking about the people of God in extremely big, broad, vast terms. That, it, that encompasses not just space, every, every, everybody on earth, every people group, every tribe, every tongue, but also across time. When the Bible talks about church and it's talking about the universal church, it's talking about anyone and everyone who's been a follower of Jesus ever. No matter where they live, no matter what time period they lived in, it's this idea of this heavenly assembly of everyone, past, present, and future, who belongs to Christ and his kingdom. The universal church, a beautiful thing to know today that as we stand here in Long Beach, we are united in one body, in one family, to the universal church of God. Meaning I am united with my brothers and sisters who believe and follow in Jesus and live in Indonesia or live in San Diego or are in the church just down the street that believe in Jesus. We are united. We are one universal church together. And one day we will stand together with the whole heavenly assembly as the people of God. That's one of the ways in which the New Testament describes the church. But the primary way it tends to refer to the church is not the universal church, but the local church. A local expression of a church. Here's a few verses that show us this. You can just look at these. I don't need to read these for you, but you can see it's referring to specific churches. Churches that are organized by regions, churches that are present in a city, churches that are meeting in specific homes and houses to say, there is a church in your house. This is the primary way the New Testament is referring to the church as local expressions of a church. Now, let me ask you this for a second, a thought experiment. Let's say um, you were moving to the Czech Republic, okay? The Czech Republic is one of the most atheistic countries in the world. There's not very many churches. And let's say you decided you were going to go there and you feel like the Lord is leading you and calling you to plant a church, to start a church, like, okay, I feel like I have, I have a couple things. We've done, done some things here. I might, I might have, you know, some direction on where to go. But let me ask you this. If you were engaged in starting a church in the Czech Republic, you knew no one, you were just starting from scratch, at what point would you say, oh, this is now a church? What would need to happen? What would you need to see to say, this is now a local church, like it's written about here. This is the church of whatever. What would you need to see? You just think about that for a second. What would be your criteria? Would it just be people in a room with music and somebody speaking about spiritual things? Would it be, uh, well, once you have small groups, right? Some kind of midweek meeting in homes where people are talking about God and opening the Bible. Is that now a church? What, about, what if you're just getting Christians together in like a coffee shop and you're reading the Bible together? Is that, is that the local church? What if uh, people start saying that they become Christians and you start baptizing them and you just start kind of hanging out together and doing life? Is, the, is it at that point, is it now a church? Is it now a local church? What about if you just get a church service 
And he just kind of bring people together and there's a preacher and some worship music and just kind of call whoever wants to come. And is it then now a local church? At what point is it a local church? Is it just having the parts together? Does something have to be present? Well, Galatians chapter 6, as it talks about a church, it says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, it didn't say the word church, but it's describing, it's giving instruction to a local church saying, if anybody's caught in sin, you who are spiritual should go restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I should, we should bear one another's burdens. So that, it seems to be talking about church in a way that seems to be more than just the sum of its parts. Just people getting in a room, hearing somebody talk or singing a couple songs. Or, there's something happening there to where the people seem to be caring for one another. They seem to be responsible for one another. They seem to have some kind of unity together to where they can be told, if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should go help them. Go restore them. Go bear the burdens of someone else that you see. Well, do we have that responsibility to just anybody? Or how about when 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about a church being a body with many members and many parts? And when one part of the body is not present or it's suffering, it affects the whole. That seems to be talking about church in a way that's more than just, oh, we show up on a Sunday to kind of do the same things. Or we meet midweek to read our Bibles in a coffee shop. It seems to be talking about something robust, something deep. So what is a local church? Here's a definition I think can be helpful. Hopefully it is. Here's a definition I think gathered from the New Testament, giving us a picture of what is a local church. A local church is this, a group of Christians that are committed to each other and regularly and gather regularly in Jesus' name for the preaching of God's word and the celebration of baptism and communion under the guidance of qualified leaders. I know that's a mouthful. You're like, couldn't you just say it's the people of God? There's something happening in a local church that we need to understand. That's why we're going to spend the next five weeks looking at this. Because I promise all of us, the preacher, everyone in this room, What's happening in the local church is more significant than we think it is. It's the work of God. God is doing something in the local church that's way more significant than we'll probably ever realize. These are some of the things that need to be present for a church to be a church. And we're actually, for the next five weeks, kind of walking through each one of these parts. But what you see in this definition is that the church isn't just an idea or a concept. It is a tangible reality that you can see and hear and touch. That as the church comes together, it is intended to be a place where somebody could walk in and say, there, right there is the church. I can see it. I can talk to them. I can know what they're about. It's right here. It's not ethereal. It's not some idea. It's not whatever you want it to be. It's this right here. This is a church. Let me just walk through these briefly. 
The church is made up of a group of Christians, meaning the church is actual followers of Jesus. The church is the people of God, yes? Yes. So it means that to be a part of the church, the people of God, it means you need to actually be a Christian. You need to actually be a follower of Jesus. But it's not just all followers of Jesus everywhere. It's a group of Christians that are committed to each other. They have a special kind of relationship with one another, which means this, in a local church, in a healthy local church, if you belong to it, you are committed to the other members of that local church in a way that you aren't to other Christians. That is not to say that we are not called to love and serve and be humble and care for everyone, but it does mean that you have a special calling and responsibility to the ones in your church. You're committed to each other. You're committed to caring for each other. You're committed to serving each other. You're committed to loving each other, to discipling each other, to bearing one another's burdens, to being accountable to one another. So it's a group of Christians that are committed to each other. And it's also a group of Christians that as they're committed, they do something. They gather regularly. We're going to talk about this a lot next week. The importance of the gathering of the church. To gather in the name of Jesus for preaching and worship. That as a local church gathers, they gather in mutual agreement on something, on the gospel. They gather in mutual agreement on who Jesus is and what he's done. And as they gather, they practice, they celebrate what God has given the church, sometimes called the ordinances, it's a big fancy word, baptism and communion, the pictures of gospel renewal that that God has given us. And all of this under the leadership and the guidance of qualified leaders, according to Bible standards. Every single church that Paul planted, because Paul's a big writer of the New Testament, every single church that he planted, he established elders. Or he wrote to them and said, establish elders. Now, different churches or different denominations might call those leaders different things or might organize the structure a little bit differently. But historic Christianity has always been in agreement that for a group of Christians gathered together, in order for them to be a church, there must be leaders present. Now, I don't hope this doesn't overwhelm you. We're going to unpack all of this in weeks to come. But for this morning, I want to hone in on this reality that the church is the people that God has saved and brought into his kingdom. It's actual Christians. Now, in any gathering of the church, there's always going to be Christians and non-Christians present. It should be that way. It should be. It should be a place where anyone is welcome at any time to come and see and hear and observe. In any gathering, there are both Christians and non-Christians. In the same way that maybe you've been to a Super Bowl party before. And you show up to a Super Bowl party, and at a Super Bowl party, there is likely going to be genuine fans of the team present, right? You show up, and we know this year who will be in the Super Bowl. We know the Chargers will be in the Super Bowl, right? So you'll show up, and you'll realize, oh, Nick's here. He's an actual Chargers fan. He really roots for them. But then there will be fake Chargers fans there. You're like, Nick, fake Chargers fans don't exist. Real ones barely exist, okay? Uh, Anytime you go to a Super Bowl party, there's real fans, and then there's people that are like, just in it for the party, right? You pick a team, you're going to root your heart out and it's going to be great. The actual fans, by the way, in those settings get really frustrated 
by the fake fans, right? Because you're like, I actually care about this. I'm invested. And you're just cheering for the other team because you like their colors. And it makes me mad, right? That's not, that doesn't matter for today. But it, at, at a Super Bowl party, there's real fans. And then there's fans that, you know, they'll admit, I'm not a real fan, but I'm just kind of here to be a part of it. I'm here for the party, right? Anytime a gathering of the church happens, like today, there will be Christians and non-Christians present. That's not a bad thing. It's actually probably should be that way. But it does mean that in order to actually be the church, it's those that are actually Christians, those that are actually followers of Jesus. There are many that even say, well, I go to church and I am a Christian that aren't. Just go look at like a survey of like the spiritual state of, of, uh, of America, right? I, I found a survey uh, this week that, that said that the, the general sense is that about half of American adults identify as being Christian, okay? Now, if you've lived in America for any time of your life, you know that that's really probably not true, right? But this is what the numbers say. It says about half of them do. But it also says that of those that identify to be Christians, this is from 2022, 56% of Christians say that God accepts all religions, which is completely opposed to what the Bible says and completely opposed to what it means to be a Christian, to identify that we are saved by no one else but by Jesus, that all other ways of approaching God and coming to him are not viable. They don't work. They don't pay for your sins. But 56% of Christians say God accepts all religions. Well, even there we know that, okay, they're clearly not Christians by definition. 43% of Christians say Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. You're not a Christian then. You're not. That's just not what the Bible says. The church is specific people. It's not broad. It's not generic. It's not vague. It is actual people who are forgiven and brought near to the Lord. That is who the true church is. It is the people that believe specific things about who Jesus is and what he's done. It is the people that believe that salvation only comes by the grace of God. That it is not through our own earning, but it's through, by grace alone that we are saved. Simply through faith alone. Not through our works, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. His work in paying for our sins on the cross, that he went before us to live the perfect life we could not and die on the cross, the death that we deserve for our sins and rose to newness of life after he died, defeating sin and death. It is only by believing in him that he is the sacrifice for our sins that we are saved. And all of that is in accordance with scripture alone, that this is our authority on how to be saved. And that all of this process is for the glory of God alone, not ours. That's fundamentally what it means to be Christian. And so the church is people that actually believe those things, specific things. This is why all throughout church history, creeds have been so important. As people have gathered to say, wait, wait, wait. People are saying that all these different beliefs are Christian. We need to get together to say, what does the Bible say? And remind everyone, no, this is what it means to be a Christian. We believe these things that the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means to be saved. It's people whose sins have been paid for because they believe in Jesus. It's people who actually 
follow Jesus in obedience and trust and faith and in repentance. A people for himself. For we should be able to know, based off of what someone confesses they believe, whether or not they are in or they are out. Now, of course, we will never truly, ultimately know someone's heart because we are not the Lord. But we have been given as the church the ability to discern someone's confession, what they profess to believe, and whether that is in alignment with the scriptures to say, yes, that person's a follower of Jesus. They're a Christian. No, that is, that is not an actual belief in what the Bible says. But the truth is we need more than just definitions. The Bible in the New Testament doesn't actually have a verse where it says, here, therefore, is thus the definition of a church. Now, what God actually does, which is more helpful for us, is he gives us these word pictures of what the church is. He says the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. It is the temple of God. It's the household of God. It is this body with many members. We need more than a definition and these word pictures show us the beauty of the people of God, what it means to be a part of the church. I want to just focus on two with the rest of our time this morning. The first one, this, is that the church is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Here's a few verses that point us to this. Revelation talks about this. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, you don't need to understand that for this morning, but here's what you need to focus on. It says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God. Church, the people is his bride. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linens, bright and pure. The people of God have been prepared and adorned as the bride of Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to look at that. Ephesians chapter 5 says that marriage itself has been designed by God to show us the relationship between Jesus and his people. Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church that God has given us marriage, that we might see a picture of what it looks like to be his people, to be his church. If the church is the bride of Christ, it means several things. It means that Jesus chooses his bride. Jesus chose his bride. It's not just kind of the people he was stuck with, like God the Father was like, all right, Jesus, here you go. I did the best I could. I hope you like them. Here they are. And Jesus is like, uh, you sure? Okay, I'll take them. Fine. The best you got. No, Jesus chose in unison with the Father, this will be the bride of Christ. This will be your, his people. He's chosen them specifically. And the truth is, we should ask ourselves, well, what kind of bride are we? We're a pretty unfaithful bride. We're actually told this all throughout the Bible. The kind of bride that Jesus chooses for himself is a pretty messy one, an unfaithful one, one that's constantly looking for other lovers, other places to be satisfied. 
We've talked about this many times before, but Jesus is the one that stands at the wedding altar saying yes to his bride, knowing all of the ways in which his bride would betray him and mock him and fail him and run away from him. No husband that I've ever met would do that. Would say, if you would tell me all of the ways in which my bride would cheat on me and run away and embarrass me, and I could know that before I said yes, would still say yes. But Jesus does. Not because our sins aren't a big deal, but because he's chosen us and he loves us. He's chosen his bride. He's purchased his bride. He's purchased it. He had to purchase us our salvation because we were enslaved to sin. It cost Jesus something to choose his bride, to purchase his bride. And it cost him the blood, his own blood. He gave everything for it. Look, we love love stories. My wife and I have been on a rom-com kick lately. We were just like finding all the old romantic comedies and watching them and on all the cheesiness, but they're great, right? The best romantic comedies are like the ones where you see, it, it, it has a moment of shifting away from comedy to being this, oh my goodness, do you see the love between them? And the best stories are the ones in which you see the people give everything for the one they love, right? They'll sacrifice whatever it takes to have this one. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus gives everything. He gives his own life to purchase his bride. There is nothing that will stand in the way of him loving his bride. He cherishes his bride. He's purchased our forgiveness, which means that Jesus thinks really highly of his bride. And I think this is important for us to understand. As the people of God, I don't know what you think of the church. When someone asks you, hey, what do you think about the church? What you might say. But I know that it's really easy for a lot of us to say a lot of disparaging things about the church. Like, oh, the church today, it's unbelievable. It's so bad. It's pathetic. It's like this and it's like this and, and it's so hypocritical and, and people say this and they think these things. And they, it's, the, the, church, the American church today is horrible. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about church and our culture today because there are a lot of really bad things that are going on. People claiming the name of Jesus and doing things that are far from biblical. But most fundamentally, we need to understand this, that when we ask, if we could ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do you think about the church? He would tell you that he cherishes his bride. He absolutely adores his people. Not because they're so impressive, but because they're his. You would never slander another man's wife in front of him. If you were standing next to a friend of yours who was married, you would never slander his wife in front of him. And I hope, hopefully we'd never do it behind his back either, but certainly we know we would never do it in front of his face. And yet that happens with Jesus' bride all the time. Where even those that are a part of the bride of Christ would slander the bride in front of Jesus. Jesus says, that's my wife. That's my bride. I purchased her. I loved her. I laid down my life for her. I cherish her. I, I covenant myself to her. I give everything for her. I love her. And you talk about her in this way? It ought to give us pause on how we talk about 
the bride of Christ. Because Jesus cherishes the bride of Christ. He also cleanses his bride, which means that more than anyone, Jesus is aware of the flaws and the sins and the failures of his bride. He doesn't just cherish them and say like, yes, forget all that stuff, who cares? No, he knows about the flaws and the sins of his people and his church more than anyone and cares about them more than anyone and is more committed to purging the sin and making her holy. Jesus loves his bride, which means we can say this this morning, church. Jesus loves Gospel City Church. Gospel City Church is not a school, a building, a place. It is the actual people here that are a part of this family. He loves you. He cherishes you. If you were to ask him, hey, Jesus, what do you think about Gospel City? He'd say, oh, that's my bride. I love her. Yeah, she's got some quirks. She's got some sins. She's got some flaws. But I'm with her to the end. I'm going to make her holy. And I can't wait for the day that that local church joins in with the whole assembly of God's people at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus loves this bride. We're also told this about the church, that the church is not just the bride of Christ, but it's the family of God. The church is the family of God. So those that actually believe and follow and trust in Jesus, they are the family of God, the sons and daughters of God. Here's some of what the New Testament says about the family of God. He says, I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God. Or John chapter 1. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Not everyone that exists is a child of God. Yes, everyone is created by God. But the Bible is clear that it is those who believe and trust and follow in Jesus that God has adopted as his sons and daughters. Look at what Galatians chapter 4 says. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, his son, his only son, who has eternally and forever been his son whom he loves. He sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we, who were not sons and daughters, might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. So the church is the people who have been made God's children, adopted through Jesus Christ, which tells us a lot about our relationship to God. That we are adopted, which means we were not inherently part of the family. We had no right to the family. We were chosen and adopted by God. Those who believe in Jesus, you have been adopted and chosen. Adoption is one of the most beautiful 
processes we, we, we know as human beings, that parents would come to the aid of someone who needs a home, who needs a shelter, who needs the love and the care and the provision of a father and a mother, that those parents would choose to sacrifice and give of themselves to welcome someone into their family and treat them as their own. God does not say, hey, look at adoption. That's like how I love you. No, he says, here's how I love you. I'm gonna show you through human beings actually doing this on earth. God did it first. I've chosen you. I've adopted you. I've made you a part of my family. Even though, what kind of children are we? We're like pretty bad kids. We're rebellious kids. We're disobedient kids. We're complaining kids. We're untrusting kids. We're disrespectful kids. And yet God says, well, that's not why I chose you to be my kid anyways. I chose you because you're mine. To be a part of the family of God means we're adopted. It means we're cared for by our Father. It means that our primary identity as human beings is children. Children. We're dependent. We're submissive. We're cared for. We're provided for. That's our primary identity as followers of Jesus. But it also defines our relationship to each other. That as we are a part of a, of a local church together, we are brothers and sisters. Which means we fight. That's not really what, it, what it's saying here, but we do, because we are brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters fight. But it means we're united together. We are family together. We are to care for each other. And we didn't get to pick who was in. It's just whoever the father chose to adopt, that's who we're stuck with. They're ours. They're, they, they, we're responsible for them. We are, wrap our arms around them and say, we're together. We are united. We are brothers and sisters. Even though sometimes you drive me crazy, I love you. We're family. There's so many more word pictures the New Testament gives. But you may hear all of this this morning and say, oh, great, cool. So that's what it means. I'm a Christian, maybe. I'm part of God's church. I'm a part of the bride, a part of his family. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this, is that all of this is God's design. And his desire is to bring all of these big, lofty, grand, beautiful realities of what it means to be the people of God. And he wants to bring all of that down to your everyday life. To say, these are not just concepts. These are not just theories. These are real, tangible realities that he wants to bring from up here down to your everyday life by calling you to be a part of a local body, a local church. To say, I want you to experience the reality of being these things every single day. In fact, Jesus died in order to save you into a people. A people universally, yes, but also he died to save you and bring you into a local people.
The Bible doesn't know of a churchless Christian. It's a really popular thing nowadays to say, yes, I'm a Christian, but that church thing, not about that. I can follow Jesus on my own. I don't need to be a part of a church. No, you might be right about that. You could be a Christian and not be a part of a church, but I can also be a husband and never, ever, ever be at home. Technically, I could still be a husband. But what kind of husband would I be? The Bible doesn't know of a churchless Christian. Of one that does not belong to a local body. When we read the New Testament, it is assumed that as followers of Jesus, we are invested and committed and a part of a local body of Christ that cares for us, that we're held accountable to, that we follow Jesus with. And so I think we can say this wholeheartedly, that we cannot faithfully follow Jesus according to his will without belonging to a local church. I know that that is a very unpopular statement to make, but it's in alignment with the scriptures. We cannot faithfully follow Jesus according to his will without belonging to a local church. That's not just God's command, though. It's an invitation into delight for us. There's a joy in this for us. I know many of us in this room maybe have been blessed with the gift of being able to go to a university. Maybe you had the opportunity and the means um, to get paid for and sent to go to a university and live on campus and have a great time. I know some of us have not been able to have that opportunity either, but we can recognize that there is something really beautiful about that gift. We maybe want to be able to give that gift to our kids someday, hopefully. But imagine meeting someone that says, I just graduated high school. I'm a college student. And you say, oh, so cool. What college do you go to? Oh, you know, uh, I, don't know how, I, don't have, I don't have one but I'm done with high school and kind of, I'm a college student now. Well, 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 what school are you a part of? Oh, no, I, I don't, I'm not a part of a school. I don't, I don't go to college, but I am a college student. You might be like, oh, that's, uh, I, don't think you're, I don't think you're a college student because I think you're supposed to go to a college, be a part of one, right? In this conversation, you, you, maybe you would take this posture of encouraging that person. Of like, well, wait, do you have the opportunity to go? Did you get accepted? Do you have the, the, the ability to go? Like, okay, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you go? And I know that maybe for those of you in this room that have experienced the university, you might, you might become an advocate to say, oh my goodness, you're going to learn so much. You're going to get an education. You're going to meet people that might be friends for the rest of your life. You're going to gain so much life experience. You're going to end with this degree that may help you at one point in your life. And it explain all the benefits of, of just saying yes to that and going and being a part of that. The truth is, we might give that same kind of encouragement, exhortation to someone that says, well, I'm a Christian, but ah, church thing, ah, whatever. When we read the scriptures, we see that being a part of a local body of Christ is not simply this duty, it is a delight. That, oh my goodness, you get to be a part of a local family of God. Where you get to have actual brothers and sisters in Christ that you can look to and turn to. People that will actually wrap their arms around you and care for you. People that will commit themselves to you. People that when you are in a time of need will say, it is my job to go and bear their burden with them. 
people that will hold you accountable, people that will give you assurance when you're doubting, man, is this stuff even real? The people that will help protect you from going astray, people that will nourish you, that will be a part of your joy, the people that will be a part of your future. Because the same people that we are worshiping Jesus with today in our local churches, we will stand side by side with in eternity worshiping Jesus. The call to join and be a part of the church, the local church, is not simply God's demand over your life. It is an invitation into joy, into delight and belonging to the people of God. There's a reason why Jesus didn't hand us the pen to write the job description and qualifications for what a church should be. Because we have all the wrong opinions. And the church is way too precious to him. Way too precious. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize, I go to church, but I don't believe. I hope every week you are hearing this invitation to repent and believe in Jesus. To turn from being your own savior, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus. That there is no other way to salvation but through the name of Jesus. Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I don't feel like the bride of Christ. I'm a part of church, but no way I feel like that. There's an invitation for you this morning to sit and marvel at his love and his care for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I don't, feel like, I don't feel like a loved son or daughter. Well, there's an invitation for you this morning to marvel at how God the Father would give his own son to make you a son and daughter. And to marvel at his commitment and his provision for you. All of this is God's idea, not our idea. He's inviting us into something that he knows is good for us and it's for our joy, but we trust him. Let's pray together.